Chapter Four of the Eye of Dread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Eye of Dread by Payne Erskine. Chapter Four: Leave Taking. Early in the morning, while the earth was still a mass of gray shadow and mist, and the sky had only begun to show faint signs of the flush of dawn. Betty, awake and alert, crept softly out of bed, not to awaken Martha, who slept the sleep of utter weariness at her side. Martha had returned only the day before from her visit to her grandfather's, a long carriage ride away from Leovite. Betty bathed hurriedly, giving a perfunctory brushing to the tangled mass of curls, and getting into her clothes swiftly and silently. She had been cautioned the night before by her mother not to awaken her sister by getting up at too early an hour for she would be called in plenty of time to drive over with the rest to see the soldiers off. But what if her mother should forget? So she put on her new white dress and gathered a few small parcels, which she had carefully tied up the night before, and her little hat and little white linen cape, and taking her shoes in hand, softly descended the stairs. Betty, Betty, her mother spoke in a sleepy voice from her own room as the child crept past her door. Why, my dear, it isn't time to get up yet. We shan't start for hours. I heard Peter Jr. say they were going to strike camp at daybreak, and I want to see them strike it. You don't need to get up. I can go over there alone. Why, no, child, mother couldn't let you do that. They don't want little girls there. Go back to bed, dear. Did you wake Martha? Oh, mother, can't I go downstairs? I don't want to go to bed again. I'll be very still. Will you lie on the lounge and try to go to sleep again? Yes, mother. Mary Ballard turned with a sigh and presently fell asleep, and Betty softly continued her way and obediently lay down in the darkened room below, but sleep she could not. At last, having satisfied her conscience by lying quietly for a while, she stole to the open door, for in that peaceful spot the Ballards slept with doors and windows wide open all through the warm nights. Oh, but the world was cool and mysterious, and the air was sweet. Little rustling noises made her feel as if strange beings were stirring. Above her head were soft chirpings, and somewhere a bird was calling an undulating, long-drawn note, low and sweet, like a tone drawn from her father's violin. Betty sat on the edge of the porch and put on her shoes, and then walked down the path to the gate. The white peonies and the iris flowers were long since gone, and on the harvest apple trees and the sweet boughs the fruit hung ripening. All Betty's long life she never forgot this wonderful moment of the breaking of day. She listened for sounds to come to her from the camp far away on the river bluff, but none were heard, only the restless moving of her grandfather's team taking their early feed in the small pasture lot nearby. How fresh everything smelled, and the sky! Surely it must be like this in heaven. It must be heaven showing through while the world slept. She was glad she had awakened early so she might see it. She and God and the angels, and all the wild things of earth. Slowly everything around her grew plainer, and long rays of color, faintly pink, streamed up into the sky from the eastern horizon. Then suddenly some pale gray floating clouds above her head blossomed into a wonderful rose laid upon a sea of gold, then gradually turned shell pink, then faded through changing shades to daytime clouds of white. She wondered if the soldiers saw it, too. They were breaking camp now, surely, for it was day. Still she swung on the gate and dreamed, until a voice roused her. So Betty sleeps all night on the gate like a chicken on the fence. A pair of long arms seized her and lifted her high in the air, 
to a pair of strong shoulders. Then she was tossed about, and her cheeks rubbed red against Grandfather Clyde's stubby beard, until she laughed aloud. "'What are you doing here on the gate?' "'I was watching the sky. I think God looked through and smiled, for all at once it blossomed. Now the colors are gone.' Grandfather Clyde set her gently on her feet and stood looking gravely down on her for a moment. "'So?' he said. "'The soldiers are striking camp over there, and then they're going to march to the square, and then everyone is to see them form and salute.' and then they are to march to the station, and, and, then, and then I don't know what will be. I think glory. Her grandfather shook his head, his thoughtful face half smiling and half grave. He took her hand. Come, we'll see what Jack and Jill are up to. He led her to the pasture lot, and the horses came and thrust their heads over the fence and whinnied. See, they want their oats. Then Betty was lifted to old Jack's bareback, and grandfather led him by the forelock to the barn while Jill followed after. "'Did Jack ever fall down and break his crown, Grandfather?' "'No, but he ran away once on a time.' "'Oh, did Jill come running after?' "'That she did.' The sun had but just cast his first glance at High Knob, where the camp was, and Mary Ballard was hastily whipping up batter for pancakes, the simplest thing she could get for breakfast, as they were to go early enough to see the boys at the camp before they formed for their march to the town square.' The children were to ride over in the great carriage with Grandfather and Grandmother Clyde, while Father and Mother would take Bobby with them in the carryall. It was an arrangement liked equally by the three small children and the well-content grandparents. Betty came to the house, clinging to her grandfather's hand. He drew the large rocking chair from the kitchen, where winter and summer had occupied a place by the window. The Bertrand in his moments of rest and leisure might sit and read the war news loud to his wife as she worked, out to a cool grass plot by the door so that he might be near enough to chat with his daughter while enjoying the morning air. Betty found tidy little Martha, fresh and clean as a rosebud, stepping busily about, setting the table with extra places and putting the chairs around. Filled with self-condemnation at the sight of her sister's helpfulness, she dashed upstairs to do her part in getting all neat for the day. First she coaxed naughty little Jamie, who, in his nightshirt, was out on the porch roof fishing, dangling his shoe over the edge by its strings tied to his father's cane, to return and be hustled into his trousers, funny little garments that came almost to his shoe-tops, and to stand still while sister washed his face and brushed his curly red hair into a state of semi-orderliness. Then there was Bobby to be kissed and coaxed, and washed and dressed, and told marvelous tales to beguile him into listening submission. "'Mother, mayn't I put Bobby's Sunday dress on him?' called Betty, from the head of the stairs. "'Yes, dear, anything you like, but hurry. Breakfast is almost ready.' Then to Martha— Leave the sweeping, dearie, and run down to the spring for the cream. To her father, Mary explained, The little girls are a great help. Betty manages to do for the boys without irritating them. Now we'll eat while the cakes are hot. Come, Bertrand. It was a grave mission and a sorrowful one, that early morning ride to say good-bye to those youthful volunteers. The breakfast conversation turned on the subject with subdued intensity. Mary Ballard did not explain herself. She was too busy serving but denounced the war in broad terms as unnecessary and iniquitous, thus soliciting from her husband his usual exclamation, when an asperism of more than ordinary daring burst from her lips. "'Mary, why, Mary, I'm astonished!' "'Everyone regards it from a different point of view,' said his wife. "'And this is my point.' It was conclusive. Grandfather Clyde turned sideways, leaned one elbow on the table in a meditative way he had, and spoke slowly. Betty gazed at him in wide-eyed attention, 
while Mary poured the coffee and Martha helped her mother by passing the cakes. Bobby sat close to his comfortable grandmother, who seemed to be giving him all her attention, but who heard everything, and was ready to drop a quiet word of significance when applicable. "'If we bring the question down to its primal cause,' said Grandfather, "'if we bring it down to its primal cause, Mary is right. For the cause being inequitious, of course, the war is the same.' "'What is primal cause, Grandfather?' asked Betty. "'The thing that began it all,' said Grandfather, regarding her quizzically. "'I don't agree with your conclusion,' said Bertrand, pausing to put syrup on Jamie's cakes, after repeated demands, therefore. "'If the cause be evil, it follows that to annihilate the cause, wipe it out of existence, must be righteous.' "'In God's good time,' said Grandmother Clyde, quietly. "'God's good time, in my opinion, seems to be when we are forced to a thing.' Grandfather lifted one shaggy eyebrow in her direction. "'At any rate, in whatever happens,' said Bertrand, the Union must be preserved, a nation whole and undivided. My father left England for love of its magnificent ideals of government by the people. Here is to be the vast open ground where all nations may come together and realize their highest possibilities, and consequently this nation must be held together and developed as a whole in all its resources, and not cut up into small, ineffective, quarrelsome factions. To allow that would mean the ruin of a colossal scheme for universal progress." Mary brought her husband's coffee and put it beside his plate, as he was too absorbed to take it, and as she did so she placed her hand on his shoulder with gentle pressure, and their eyes met for an instant. Then Grandfather Clyde took up the thread. "'Speaking of your father makes me think of my father, your old Grandfather Clyde, Mary. He fought with his father in the Revolutionary War when he was lad no more than Peter Jr.'s age, or less. He lived through it and came to be a judge of the Supreme Court of New York, and helped to frame the Constitution of that state, too.' I used to hear him say, when I was a mere boy, and he would bring his fist down on the table with an emphasis that made the dishes rattle, for all he averred that he never used gesticulation to aid his oratory. He used to say, I remember his words as if it were but yesterday, Slavery is a crime which we, the whole nation, are accountable for, and for which we will be held accountable. If we as a nation will not do away with it by legislation or mutual compact justly, then the Lord will take it into his own hands and wipe it out with blood. He may be patient for a long while, and give us a good chance, but if we wait too long, it may not be in my day, it may not be in yours, he will wipe it out with blood. And here was where he used to make the dishes rattle. Maybe, then, this is the Lord's good time, said Grandmother. I believe in preserving the Union at any cost, slavery or no slavery, said Bertrand. The bigger and grander the nation, the more rottenness, if it's rotten at heart. I believe it better, even at the cost of war, to wipe out a national crime, or let those who want slavery take themselves out of it. Betty began to quiver through all her little system of high-strung nerves and sympathies. The talk was growing heated, and she hated to listen to excited arguments, yet she gazed and listened with fascinated attention. Bertrand looked up at his father-in-law. Why, father, why, father, I'm astonished! I fail to see how permitting one tremendous evil can possibly further any good purpose. To my mind, the most tremendous evil that could be perpetrated on this globe, the thing that would do more to set all progress back for hundreds of years, maybe, would be to break up this union. Here in this country now we are advancing at a pace that covers the centuries of the past in leaps of hundred years in one. Now cut this land up into little caviling factions, and where are we? Why, the very motto of the Republic would be done away with and union there is strength. 
I tell you, slavery is the sword of Delilah, and the nation, if it is divided, will be like Samson with his lock shorn. Well, war is here, said Mary, and we must send off our young men to the shambles, and later on fill up our country with the refuse of Europe in their stead. It will be a terrible bloodletting for both North and South, and it will be the best blood on both sides. I'm as sorry for the mothers down there as I am for ourselves. Did you get the apples, Bertrand? We'd better start, to be there at eight. I put them in the carry-all, my dear. Sweet boughs and harvest apples. The boys will have one more taste before they leave. Father, we want to carry some. Put some in the carriage, too, said Martha. Yes, father, we want to eat some while we are on the way. Why, Jamie, those are for the soldiers, they're not for us, cried Betty in horror. Teed even one, it seemed to her, would be greed and robbery. In spite of the gravity of the hour till the older ones, the occasion took on an air of festivity to the children. In grandfather's dignified old family carriage, Martha sat with demure elation on the back seat at her grandmother's side, wearing her white linen cape and a wide-brimmed, low-crowned hat of Neapolitan straw, with a blue ribbon around the crown, and a narrow one attached to the front, the end of which was held in her hand to pull the brim down to shade her eyes, as was the fashion for little girls of the day. She felt well pleased with the hat, and held the ribbon daintily in her shapely little hand. At her feet was the basket of apples, and with her other hand she guarded three small packages. Grandmother wore a gray, changeable silk. The round waist fitted her plump figure smoothly, and the skirt was full and flowing. Her bonnet was made of the same silk, shirt on rattan, and was not perched on the top of her head, but covered it well and framed her sweet face with a full, white toll retching set close under the brim. Grandfather, up in front, drove Jack and Jill, who, he said, were feeling their oats. Betty did not wonder, for oats are sharp and must prick their stomachs. She sat with Grandfather. He had promised she should the night before, and Jamie was tucked in between them. He ought to have been in behind with Grandmother, but a scream of rebellion as he was lifted in brought instant yielding from Betty, when Grandfather interfered and took them both. But when Jamie insisted on holding the reins, Grandfather grew firm, and when screams again began, his young majesty was lifted down and placed in the road to remain until instant obedience was promised, after which he was restored to the coveted place, and away they went. Betty's white linen cape blew up behind, and her ribbons flew like blue butterflies all about her hat. She forgot to hold down the brim, as polite little girls did who knew how to wear their Sunday clothes. She, too, held three small packages in her lap. For days, ever since Peter Jr. and Richard Kildine had taken tea with them in their new uniforms, the little girls had patiently sewed to make the articles which filled these packages. Mary Ballard had planned them, and each was a needle-book filled with needles large enough to be used by clumsy fingers. A pin-ball, a good-sized iron thimble, and a case of thread and yarn for mending, buttons of various sizes, and a bit of beeswax, molded in Mary Ballard's thimble, to wax their linen thread. All were neatly packed in a case of bronze leather bound about with firm braid, and tucked under the strap of the leather on the inside was a small pair of scissors. It was all very compact, and tied about with the braid. Mother had done some of the hardest of the sewing, but for the most part the stitches had been painstakingly put in by the children's own fingers. The morning was cool, and the dust had been laid by a heavy shower in the night. The horses held up their heads and went swiftly, in spite of their long journey the day before. Soon they heard in the distance the sound of the drum, and the merry note of a fife. Again a pang shot through Betty's heart that she had not been a boy of Peter Jr.'s age that she might go to war. She heaved a sigh and looked up in her grandfather's face. It was a grizzled face, with blue eyes that shot a kindly glance sideways at her as if he understood. 
when they drew near the horses danced to the merry tune as if they would like to go too all the camp seemed alive how splendid the soldiers looked in their blue uniforms their guns flashing in the sun betty watched how their legs with the stripes on them seemed to twinkle as they moved all together marching in companies back and forth back and forth they went and the orders came to the children short and abrupt as the men went through their maneuvers they saw the sentinel pacing up and down and wondered why he did it instead of marching with the other men all these questions were saved up to ask of grandfather when they got home they were too interested to do anything but watch now at last very suddenly it seemed the soldiers broke ranks and scattered over the greensward running hither and thither like ants betty again drew a long breath now they were coming the soldiers in whom they were particularly interested can they do what they please now she asked her grandfather yes for a while all along the sentry line carriages were drawn up for this hour from eight till nine was given to the boys to see their friends for the last time in many months maybe years maybe forever as they had come from all over the state some had no friends to meet them but guests were there in crowds and every man might receive a handshake whether he was known or not all were friends to these young volunteers bertrand ballard was known and loved by all the youths some from the village and others from the country around had been in the way of coming to the ballard home simply because the place made an enjoyable centre for them some came to practice the violin and others to sing some came to try their hand at sketching and painting and some just to hear bertrand talk all was done for them quite gratuitously on his part and no laugh was merrier than his even the chore boy came in for a share of the ballard's kindly help sitting at mary ballard's side in the long winter evenings and conning lessons to patch up an education snatched haphazard and hardly come by here comes one of them now head up smiling and happy-go-lucky bertrand here comes johnny give him the apples and let him distribute them poor boy i'm sorry he's going he's too easily led said mary oh johnny johnny cooper i've got something for you we made them mother helped us cried martha now the children were out of the carriage and running about among their friends johnny cooper snatched jamie from the ground and threw him up over his head then set him down again and took the parcel then he caught martha up and set her on his shoulder while he peered into the package stop johnny set me down I'm, I'm too big now for you to toss me up her arms were clasped tightly under his chin as he held her by the feet slowly he let her slide to the ground and thrust the little case in his pocket and stooping kissed the child i'll think of you and your mother when i use this he said and you'll write to us won't you johnny said mary if you don't i shall think something has gone wrong with you he knew what she meant and she knew he knew there are worse things than bullets johnny never you worry for me mrs ballard we're going down for business and you won't see me again until we've licked the rebs he held her hand awkwardly for a minute then relieved the tension by carrying off the two baskets of apples i know the trees these came from he said and soon a hundred boys in blue were kneading bertrand's choicest apples here come the twins said someone as peter jr and richard kildine came toward them across the sward betty ran to meet them and caught richard by the hand she loved to have him swing her in long leaps from the ground as he walked see richard i made this for you all myself almost i put a c in the corner so it wouldn't get mixed with the others because i made this especially for you did you why didn't you put an r in the corner if you meant for me i think you meant this for charlie crabb no i didn't betty spoke most emphatically martha has one for him i put c because you'll see when you open it everything's bound all round with my very best cherry-coloured hair ribbon to make it very special and that is what c is for 
All the rest are brown, and this is prettier, and it won't get mixed with Peter Jr.'s. Ah, yes, C is for cherry, Betty's hair ribbon, and the golden brown leather is for Betty's hair. Is that it? Yep. Haven't I one, too? asked Peter Jr. Yep, we made them just alike, and you can sew on buttons and everything. Thus the children made the leave-taking less somber, to the relief of everyone. Grandfather and Grandmother Clyde had friends of their own, whom they had come all the forty miles to see. Neighbor boys from many of the farms around their home, and their daughter-in-law's own brother, who was like a son to them. There he stood, lithe and strong and genial, and, alas, too easy-going to be safe among the temptations of the camp. Quickly the hour passed, and the call came to form ranks for the march to the town square, where speeches were to be made, and prayers were to be read before the march to the station. Our little party waited until the last company had left the campground, and the excited children had seen them all and heard the sound of the fife and drum until their last note and beat, as the boys in blue filed past them and off down the winding country road among the trees. Nothing was said by the older ones of what might be in the future for those gallant youths, yes, and for the few men of greater years with them, as they wound out of sight. It was better so. Bobby fell asleep in Mary Ballard's arm as they drove back, and a bright tear fell from her wide-open, far-seeing eyes down on his baby cheek. It was no lack of love for his son that kept Elder Craigmill away at the departure of the boys from their camp on the bluff. He had virtually said his say and parted from his son when he gave his consent to his going off in the first place. To him war meant sacrifice, and the parting with sons, at no matter what cost. The dominant idea with him was ever the preservation of the Union. At nine o'clock, as usual, that morning he had entered the bank, and a few minutes later, when the troops formed on the square, he came out and took his appointed place on the platform as one of the speakers, and offered a closing prayer for the confounding of the enemy, after the manner of David of old. Then he descended and took his son's hand as he stood in the ranks, with his arm across the boy's shoulder, looked a moment in his eyes, then, without a word, he turned and re-entered the bank. End of chapter 4 Recording by Chelsea Baker